And welcome back, everyone, to Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. My name is Daniel Rogers, and I'm here with a good friend of mine, Summer Lee Staten. Not Staten, Staten. <laughs> Clarify that before because <laughs> it's spelled the same way as Staten Island. And she actually does live and work in New York at Trinity Church Wall Street. Uh, she is the direct executive director for Faith Formation and Education. One interesting tidbit uh, that she told me is if you ever go to New York and you want to see Alexander Hamilton's gravesite. If you're a big fan of that musical, then you can, or a big fan of money, uh, you can stop by and uh, see that grave song and uh, pay your respects to him, as well as tour downtown New York and uh, the financial district with Broadway and Wall Street all right there together. So uh, I met Summerlee at the Discovering Renewal conference that Aram and I talked to you guys about last week. And so if you're interested in what Aram had to say about discovering renewal and you're like, I'd love to go there, you can meet some interesting people. Well, this is one of the interesting people that you might meet. Um, she hasn't decided whether or not she'll be at the conference next year, but that is where her and I, I got to meet and where I learned about her love for the tree of life, which is what she has come to talk to you guys about today. So uh, Summer Lee, you take it from here for a moment. Just tell us about who you are, sort of introduce yourself to the people. You can talk about your education, whatever you like to, whatever you think they need to know about you. I'd love for you to share that with them now. Thanks, Daniel. It's, thank you for having me on the podcast. And it's really nice to see you and to hear your voice and catch up with you a little bit. Um, it was great to meet you at the conference uh, up at Discovering Renewal in uh, just outside of Nashville, Asheville is where we were in North Carolina. Yeah. Um, and it was just really lovely to meet you there. I was uh, there with my dad, who is an avid fly fisherman. Um, and that was my first time uh, learning how to fly fish. So it was quite an exciting time to be uh, to be in North Carolina and be there on that special trip with my dad. And then I got this extra bonus of getting to meet so many wonderful wonderful people, including including you. So thank you for having me. Um, and I'm excited to talk about the Tree of Life today. Um, yeah, uh, so uh, as you noted, I work for Trinity Church Wall Street, which is in lower Manhattan. It's an Episcopal, a progressive Episcopal church uh, downtown at the corner of Broadway and Wall Street. Um, I actually grew up in a Baptist church, um, so I didn't grow up Anglican or Episcopalian. And I've always been really interested in the tree of life. Um, I remember uh, even being a little kid, uh, going to Sunday school and thinking about the Genesis story and just asking a lot of, I was kind of that kid who asked a lot of sort of impertinent questions. Um, like, why did God um, put these trees here, you know, in the first place? Um, right. Why is there this tree that Adam and Eve aren't allowed to eat from? And I think that's pretty common. I think a lot of children have those kinds of uh, questions. But later, uh, when I went to seminary, um, I really kind of honed in on thinking about uh, trees in the Bible, and especially the two trees that are in Genesis, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Um, but originally, I kind of came at it from a artistic perspective. Um, before I went to seminary, I was a singer-songwriter, um, and I was a theater major in college. And so I was kind of attracted to the ways that, um, that the stories in Genesis, especially the Eden story, are depicted uh, in art, in music, in poetry, in film. Um, so uh, eventually uh, I went to seminary, I got an MDiv uh, degree, and then I went on to uh, Yale Divinity School where I studied uh, for a Master's of Sacred Theology and STM degree and at the Yale Institute of Sacred Music. And while I was there, I wanted to concentrate on the reception history, particularly the artistic reception history of Genesis. Um, so I was looking at modern American novels, poetry, films, different kinds of artistic modes for thinking about the way, in particular, the trees in Genesis, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, are sort of used as symbols in artistic expression. But because I was uh, focusing on that for my master's thesis, I began to really look closely at the text itself, uh, looking at the text in the, in the Hebrew, um, but also just thinking a little bit deeper about what might be going on in, in those narratives and the way that those trees are kind of central to 
the two accounts of creation in Genesis. Um, so yeah, that's how I kind of stumbled on this, uh, this interest. And after seminary, uh, went to work at Trinity and I've been at Trinity working in faith formation now um, for, for several years and really enjoying it there. Yeah. And you, um, you lead some teachings and things like that online. I know you have one you were telling me about the other day, uh, where you're going to talk about sort of the origin of scripture and how we got the Bible that we have and things like that. That's coming up in uh, the springtime, right? Are you going to, people could sign up for that online if they wanted to, um, if they don't live, yeah. you know, <laughs> in yeah, Manhattan. that's actually going to be, <laughs> yeah, that's actually going to be coming up just around the corner. So on January 19, we are launching a program called into the word. Um, and it's going to be a, a 11 week program. So it's going to be both online and in person in New York. We're providing dinner for people that come in New York, but people can listen in from anywhere around the country. And we're inviting uh, leading theologians and clergy and thinkers to come and talk about how the Bible came to be. So uh, we'll be talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. We'll be talking about oral tradition. We'll be talking about the history of the Bible and how it was formed. And then also talking about how do we in church communities um, read the Bible responsibly? What does it mean that there are so many different translations of the Bible? There are so many different interpretations of the Bible, different cultural interpretations of the Bible. And how do we um, read it in a way that is life-giving for communities and not harmful for communities. So we're going to be talking about that for 11 weeks and it's going to be exciting. This is our first time doing a program like this. So yeah. I'm hoping that people are going to uh, really be interested in it. Yeah. Especially when, uh, you know, most of, most of theology has been sort of dictated by people like me, you know, uh, a white male, uh, you know, Christian living in the West, right? Like most of our modern world, <laughs> the literature we have has been produced by people like me. And so giving voices to African-American theologians or um, feminist theologians or indigenous theologians, you know, th those people can add so much more to the conversation than what I can add. And while it's still scripture, while it's still, you know, God's word, we still have to be willing to admit that we all carry to the text our presuppositions and our uh, traditions and our ways of viewing the world around us. And so inviting more and more people into this community of interpretation can only help to uh, to enrich the text before us, right? Uh, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And what we're hoping to do is to help open a window for people to see their own um their own biases about the text, um, the way that they are bringing their own history to the text, the way that they're having a conversation, um, you know, with the text and not just themselves, but with the text's history of reception, that there's actually a long history um, in terms of how the text itself has, has been interpreted in different places and times that have sometimes been harmful for certain communities. Yeah. So kind of naming that, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I remember so many times I'd feel frustrated because I would be watching a panel of speakers at a lectureship or something like that. And the topic is like women's roles in the Christian community. And every single speaker was a dude. And you're like, okay, surely, <laughs> right, right. you know, surely they could <laughs> offer some good information on interpreting, you know, first Timothy two or first Corinthians 14, but like, <laughs> do they really know, you know, can they really give a full, you know? <laughs> open mind perspective on this subject. Like maybe we should hear from the ladies on this. And so um, I just love that you are doing that. That sounds so much fun. And like I told you on our phone conversation, I would love to be part of that if I wasn't already, uh, you know, working full time and taking a full class schedule in the spring and things I would, uh, I'd be all over that. So yeah, no, it sounds like you have, you have a lot going on, um, yeah. but a lot of good things too. I know that you're, um, you know, you're being a pastor uh, too. Yeah. So and that's really important, important work. And, but yeah, we're really excited about it. Um, two of our uh, female priests on staff, Mother Yane and Mother Beth are going to be talking about um, feminist readings of the text. And I think, you know, it, it will be important, right, to hear all of the different voices. So it's, it's sure. going to be great. But I know you've got a ton going on. So, you know, oh, no yeah. worries. We'll, we'll catch you next time. We'll catch exactly. you next time. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's going to be such a hit that you'll have it again next year. So 
or you know sometime <laughs> okay, down the road. So, so we'll catch it on the next cycle. Um, yeah, I remember just to throw this out there. Uh, I never, I never saw the story of Hagar as as beautifully as I did until I read Rachel Held Evans' um, sort of paraphrase of it in one of her books that she wrote in Inspiration. Just naming you know giving a name to god like nobody else did in scripture mm-hmm. well what is the what a powerful testimony to uh to hagar and to her faith journey and the abuse that she had to endure and the turmoil that she went through and yet here she is able to name god in a more intimate way than than anybody else did in scripture it's so cool <laughs> so yeah that's right i think she names god elroy right which is the god who sees yeah the um, god who sees. so yeah, the God who sees, which is such a powerful name. And if I'm remembering correctly, she is the first person in the Bible to give um, a name to God like that yeah. uh, directly. So it is a really beautiful, the God who sees, right? What yeah, a beautiful. And it's, and it's a slave outside of the camp of Israel, you know, outside of that lineage that gives God that name. So, yeah. so cool. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's go ahead and sort of uh, move towards this topic of the tree of life. I, I know in some of our discussions leading up to this, I told you how most of my audience is going to come from more of a fundamentalist background. And mm-hmm. so the big question on everybody's mind is, are we dealing with actual trees here? Like, was there an actual snake slithering up to the, you know, to Eve and saying, Hey, take a bite of that apple. Like sort of from your perspective and going from a Baptist tradition to a more progressive uh, Episcopal tradition, what's sort of been your journey in approaching how you even look at the text there in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Yeah. So I'm, I guess that what I would say is, first of all, I would say to kind of state the obvious that um, tree imagery shows up in a lot of religious traditions um, and not just tree imagery as a kind of general statement, but sacred trees, this kind of concept of sacred trees that have some kind of power or some kind of central part of a religious narrative. We see this in a lot of religious traditions. Um, So I'm thinking about, for instance, um, the Bodhi tree uh, that the Buddha sits under when he experiences enlightenment, right, in, in Buddhism. Um, but also even in popular sort of mythology, I think about um, Norse mythology, for instance, you have this cosmic tree. Um, Ig- Ig- I think it's Yggdrasil is the name of the tree. Um, it's this big, you know, cosmic tree. Um, you also have a lot of um, sort of mythological stories even today. I think about like the Lord of the Rings. If you think about the Ents, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're this kind. There are these sort of sentient kind of tree guardians. Um, And you see a lot of this idea about a sacred tree or about sacred trees. I mean, Avatar is another example, right? I know that that the second part of Avatar is coming out. There's that big central tree, right? I think they call it the mother tree um, in Avatar. So there's just a lot in popular culture and religious culture, this idea of a sacred tree that is at the center of the world or that is somehow connected, its roots may be connected to the underworld or in a Hebrew conception to what we would call Sheol, um, and whose branches kind of goes up into the heavens and connects to the divine realm. Um, So the idea that trees uh, have a kind of sentience or they have a kind of power um, to them is common in mythology, in a lot of religious uh, traditions. And actually, in the ancient Near East, um, we see a lot of this same kind of um, iconography um, and thinking about the role of trees. So, for instance, in Assyrian iconography, um, you'll see a lot of cherubim um, watering sacred trees, this kind of iconography of cherubim watering sacred trees. Um, and also in the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, which predates the Genesis account, you have um, the sacred cedar forest, right, where you have this character, Gilgamesh, um, and his partner who sort of like go into, you know, this sacred um, forest, and there's this you know, forest god, I think it's Humbaba, I think is his name, which is Humbaba, the sacred forest god. 
Um, and then there's this kind of magical garden, right, in the Epic of Gilgamesh called Dilmun, which is this land that's a garden with ut a utopia of jewels and there's all this fresh water. So there are lots of stories like that in the ancient Near East about these kind of mythical gardens where there are these fantastical trees. Um, and in a way, in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, um, especially, we see a lot of this kind of thing surrounding um, the ways that the writers of the Hebrew Bible think about uh, think about trees. Um, so, for instance, um, in Judges 9, uh, there is the passage about the olive tree, the fig tree, and the grapevine tree. So there's a parable of the fig trees. And it says, you know, the trees once went out to anoint a king over themselves. So they said to the olive tree, reign over us. And the olive tree answered them, shall I stop producing my rich oil by which gods and mortals are honored and go to sway over the trees? And then you have the fig tree speaks and the grapevine tree speaks, right? And this is all in, in the Hebrew Bible in Judges, in the book of Judges. Um, and so there's this kind of way in which these trees, right, in this parable, have, they have agency, you know, they're having a yeah. conversation with each other, they're sort of anthropomorphized, right? And that's a kind of a common trope that we see both in the Bible, um, but also in lots of other um, ancient Near Eastern stories. Um, and so I would say that the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and bad in Genesis are functioning a little bit more um, like that, following in that kind of ancient Near Eastern tradition. What you have in Eden is you have um, an enclosed garden. Um, in Hebrew, it's Gan Eden. Um, and the Gan Eden is is enclosed, we know it's enclosed because uh, at the end of the Genesis creation story, when Adam and Eve are banished from the garden, um, God places two cherubim there with flaming swords to keep them out so that they can't get back in. So there's some kind of gate or hedge, right? So there's a sense in which this is an enclosed or a walled garden, which is the way that many gardens would have been conceptualized in the, in the ancient Near East. And the trees um, are a part of this kind of walled protected ecosystem. So the reason it's important to think of it as being walled is that it's metaphorically kind of trying to say that this is an enclosed sacred space, not unlike the land of Dilmun in the Epic of Gilgamesh or in other ancient Near Eastern conceptions, that it is a utopia in a way, or right. a, or an environment in which everything is in balance. Yeah, um, or even so, or even like the promised land that flows with milk and honey, you know, this sacred space that had well-defined borders and, you know, things like that placed up by, uh, placed by Moses and Joshua, um, which ultimately, you know, placed by God. So this idea of a sacred, sacred space in which life dwelt, um, yeah, is, is a perfect analogy for, for the uh the promised land or even for the new jerusalem as i'm sure we'll get to you know way way later in the podcast yeah yeah exactly there's this idea of of a kind of perfect land like you said a land flowing with milk and honey or a land where abundance is a reality for all living creatures um so we have basically um we have basically these two creation accounts, right? Which, which everybody knows. Um, and I think in most Christian interpretations of the Adam and Eve story, which is maybe a way to put it, um, most of the time people tend to focus in on the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. And the focus is usually on what we sometimes call in Christian parlance, and you know, I've got air quotes here, the fall, right? right? That Adam and Eve are not supposed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. It is the one tree that is prohibited to them. And yet they eat from it and then they experience this fall. Um, but I guess what I would like to say is that in a real sense, um, the story of the tree of life is actually more central to the narrative than what's going on with the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. That's not what I was told when I was growing up. When I was growing up, it was all about 
right? The tree of the knowledge of good and bad and Adam and Eve, they ate from this tree. And there was this serpent that later gets sort of understood to be a kind of Satan figure or a devil figure. And um, that doesn't really seem to be the center of the text. It's and actually he loses his legs. Tree. Yeah. <laughs> and he loses his legs, right? Weirdly, he loses his legs, right? Um, and there's some cool paintings, too, um, of Adam and Eve with the snake, and the snake has legs. I can't remember which ones they are, but maybe I'll remember later in the podcast. Um, but yeah, but anyway, um, yeah, so I think that um, there's this sense in which, um, what am I trying to say? That uh that the center of the story is really the tree of life. It's not really the, the tree of the knowledge, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Um, and that is because there's something going on literarily in the text that has to do with the efficacy or the potency of these trees, which points towards them being mythical. And so I think when you're when we're asking the question, are we talking about a historical place? Is Eden a historical place with two historical people, Adam and Eve, who lived in a particular time and place in a garden called Eden with these two historical trees? I would say no, that the text doesn't um the text isn't functioning that way. That the text is functioning as a mythical or literary um, story, but it is theologically true. Mm -hmm. It's not historically true, but it's theologically true. And I think that distinction is important. Yeah, I think there's a quote, I wish I could remember who actually was is the origin of this quote, but they said something to the effect of uh, what, what makes a fairy tale true is not that dragons at one point existed, but it's that dragons could be defeated. That's right. true. Yeah. And so what we read in Genesis one through 11, I guess you would say is true, but that doesn't mean that we have to be able to take out our shovels and go dig up, you know, Adam's grave, <laughs> grave site and say, Oh, here's his bones. We know him to be an actual historical figure. The messages of the parables are true, even though, you know, there wasn't a particular person Jesus had it in mind when he said a sower went forth to sow. Yes, sowers go and sow. And yes, their seeds fall on the good ground. But that didn't have to be John who lived on Second Street in Nazareth that went out to do the sowing. Right? <laughs> the, sto the story is true. And so uh, people mature and people learn the difference between good and bad. And people consciously try to make themselves into God and step away from the tree of life. You know, that that's a story that is as old as time. And so... Um, to say that these are not historical figures is not to say that the stories are false or that the stories don't have any meaning or that the stories hold no value. So I appreciate you bringing that out, um, especially for our audience who was raised with this thought. If these things aren't literally true, then you can just throw out the resurrection of Jesus. You can just throw out the command to you know love our neighbor as ourself, because if that's not true, then none of it is right. And so that sort of either or uh, view of scripture has robbed the joy of it. And that's why I wanted to bring you on because of how much, like hopefully the audience can already tell they, they can't see you like I can, but just see the smile on your face and the excitement in your eyes as you talk about some of these things. So, um, so glad that you could be here. Uh, you mentioned to go back to the one thing you were talking about a second ago, you mentioned about the, uh, the tree of good and bad, not being the central tree in the story. The central tree is actually the tree of life. And I think yeah. one of the ways that we see that is whereas the tree of good and bad is you can correct me on this because you're the, the scholar here uh, is only mentioned in Genesis two. Now there are that, that expression to know good and evil is brought up again at the beginning of Deuteronomy. I think it's mentioned one other time. Um, was it Solomon whenever he was judging uh, that he knew the difference between good and bad. And that's why he was to judge. I think if I think that's correct. But the tree of life, on the other hand, isn't just contained in Genesis two and three. It is, it finds itself all through scripture from uh, to Proverbs and all the way to the end of the Bible and the book of Revelation, not to mention in all the places that you told me were references to the tree of life that I wasn't even aware of until you mentioned them. Uh, like I'm sure we'll talk about later with, uh, you know, I'm divine, you are the branches and, uh, you know, Paul's fruit of the spirit and things like that. So, so would you say that's, would you say that's a good take that one of the reasons why we know this is not just because of 
what we find in Genesis two and three, but is because in how these sort of symbols are used throughout scripture. Is that sort of where you're coming from? Yeah, for sure. So even um, even if you think about Psalm one, which is important, right? Because it's the very first Psalm. Um, Psalm one says, happy is the one who does not walk in the path of the wicked or stand in the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the Torah, in the law of the Lord. And on his law, they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season and their leaves do not wither. And in all that they do, they prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So there is this sense in which um, I think one way to think about this is what happens with Adam and Eve. And Genesis is very um, explicit about this. Genesis says that the reason that they have to leave the garden um, is lest they reach out and eat from the tree of life. Um, so there's a concern in Genesis about Adam and Eve having some kind of continual access to, to the tree of life. And when they lose access to the tree of life, they're sort of banished into the wilderness, if you will. Um, they lose access to this harmonious, enclosed world in which everything was in balance. There was a relational balance between Adam and Eve. There was a relational balance between God and Adam and Eve. And there was a relational balance between God and the creation and between Adam and Eve and the creation. And when they leave the garden, they're sort of losing that balance. And in some ways, the symbol of that loss is the loss of their access to the tree of life, which um, the writer, uh, writers or redactors of the second creation account in Genesis um, are making that explicit, right? That this is the reason why they can't stay in the garden, because lest they reach out and take from the tree of life. And so in a very real sense, a lot of what is going on in other parts of the Hebrew scriptures and even on into the New Testament is this concern about kind of how to get back into the garden, which is not to say <laughs> yeah. to go back to a particular place. This is another reason, right, to admit that we're not talking about one historical place that we could sort of go and right. find, um, but that it is a metaphorical idea that the idea is how do we get back into balance with God into balance with each other and into balance with the creation. What does it look like for us to be back in an environment where we can be fully in God's presence? Because we have this in the second account of creation in Genesis, we have what some scholars would call an anthropomorphized God, but we have a God who's walking in the cool of the day, whose hands is in, you know, God's hands are in the soil and you're meant to picture uh, an embodied God. You might even say an incarnational God, we could maybe go that far, but you're meant to picture an embodied uh, God who's walking in the garden, talking with Adam and Eve in communion, right? So what's really going on in this enclosed Gan Eden where, where there is abundance and where all of the animals and Adam and Eve and every everybody has everything that they need, what's really going on is that it is a place of perfect communion. It is a place where God's presence is infusing that closed environment. And they're not having to be separated from God in any way or, or to be separated right from each other and from the creation. There's what I would call an ecological, um, an ecological balance. Um, John Walton is a really wonderful scholar and he, and he says it this way. He says, ancient Near Eastern anthropology suggests that Adam and Eve should be understood in archetypal terms stressing the elements of connectivity that are inherent in their labels, 
all people, right, are connected to the ground. So as you know, the uh, the Adam, Adam comes from the Hebrew word Adama, which is the ground, right? So God creates the Adam from the Adama. All people are connected to the ground and are mortal and made of dust. So John Walton says they become functional not only as images of God, but as beings that are interconnected to the cosmos. These are his words. Um, beings that are interconnected to the cosmos, to God and to one another. Um, so the introduction actually of the two trees, right, into this gone Eden, into this sort of what I would call, these are, these are my words, I would call Eden a vivified troposphere. Oh. <laughs> you know, it is, <laughs> it, is a, it is a space in which all of the creation is sparkling with life. You have these four rivers, right, that flow out to the ends of the earth, and you have these this beautiful orchard. Um, Carol Newsom calls it a forest park or a forest orchard. Um, you have jewels, right? The text says there's onks and bdellium, right? There's in Ezekiel it says uh, that there's you know emeralds and sapphires and so it is it is a mythical idealization of this sort of perfect realm in which we can fully be in god's presence so what they are really losing when they lose access to the tree of life is they are losing access um, to that sort of unmediated uh, way of being in god's presence walking in the cool of the day with god and having balance. It is a world, right? Before they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, it is a world without hierarchy. It is a world without um, oppression. It is, a, it is a world in which there's no climate crisis, right? right. <laughs> Everything is in balance. And you see this not just, it's not just, oh, like a nice idea, but it's actually embedded in the Hebrew itself, where the Adam is connected, the human person is connected to the Adama, um, even in that very, very first um, chapter, right? In, Gen in Genesis one, you have, um, you know, the Mayim, which, you know, is the, is the water, is connected to the Shamayim, which is the sky. Um, and you have the Etz, the word for tree is Etz, which is connected to the word Eretz, which is for the earth, right? Even just linguistically, verbally, um, there's a sense in which the trees are connected to the earth, are connected to the human, are connected to the, the sky, is connected to the water, the water cycle, the earth cycle. So Genesis envisions that God is infusing God's presence, the ruach, right? The spirit, yeah. the wind, the breath of God is infusing the gan Eden, the 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 place of Eden with God's presence. And it's this unmediated uh, access to this vivified troposphere that is ecologically beautiful. So that's what they're losing. When they lose uh, access to the tree of life, it's that connectivity. And so in a lot of ways, the rest of parts of the Hebrew Bible and parts of the New Testament are trying to say, well, how do we get back there? <laughs> Yeah, great question. How do we, you know, how do we, how do we get back to that? And so, what happens is, is that the Hebrew, a lot of the Hebrew wisdom literature writings, emphasize that if you can't eat from the tree of life, you can become a good tree. What does that mean? Well, Psalm one, right, is setting that up. Happy is the one who does not walk in the path of the wicked, but their delight is in the Torah. Their delight is in the law of the Lord. They are like trees planted by streams of water. And you see this theme over and over again in the Hebrew scriptures. So for instance, um, you'll see this in Proverbs where it will say, wisdom is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. Notice here, wisdom is personified as woman wisdom, so it's personified as female. Wisdom is a tree of life to those who take, who take hold of her. And Proverbs 11 says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and the one who is wise saves lives. 
We see this in Jeremiah, right, where it says the trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted, in which the birds build their nests. Um, so over and over again, we see this um, idea that, well, uh, if you can't get back into that, into Eden, <laughs> um, you can follow the law, you can follow the Torah, the precepts of God, you can be in obedience to God. And in that way, you will bear good fruit. You will become rooted in God in such a way that you become like a tree of life. This also connects then later in, in Hebraic understanding to the Torah as a whole. So, you know, um, sometimes the whole Torah is called the Etz Chaim, right? The, the tree of life, um, because it is itself the place that you go for the nurturing wisdom in order to come back and to be connected to and in the presence of God. Wow. That that was awesome. Can like <laughs> I want to listen to that again. <laughs> that was great. Um so one of the thoughts that came to my mind when you when you talked about uh, when you talked about the law and the law being connected to life giving and we can not only receive life from uh Torah but we can also give life to others through being good trees. It brought my mind to Galatians and uh the reason why is because I've been studying Galatians for a class that I taught uh last last uh whatever that was, it's that, that might've been a year ago, <laughs> but anyways, it's still all fresh on my mind. And one of the things that pops up in Galatians is Paul says uh, in the first part of chapter five, he says, look, circumcision doesn't mean anything. Uncircumcision doesn't mean anything. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then he goes through the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, long suffering, which I kind of wonder if love is the fruit of the spirit and all those other things are like uh are attributes of love, you know, peace, long suffering, kindness, joy. Like that's what you get when you have love. But then at the end of the book, he says that circumcision doesn't mean anything. Uncircumcision doesn't mean anything. The only thing that counts, he doesn't say faith expressing itself through love this time. He says a new creation. And so it's almost like Paul is going, okay, it's, it's about faith expressing itself in love. And the law is summed up in this one phrase to love your neighbor as yourself Here's the fruit of that. And really what all that means is a new creation. That is what all that means is this is how we get back to Eden. This is how we get back to the tree of life. It, not by traveling you know, on some pilgrimage to a geographical location lost in time, but through living a life of love, because that is the connecting energy that brings us all together. That, that state of harmony and communion that you're expressed so beautifully there from Genesis 1 through 3. So I thought I'd throw that out there because that really seem to connect with a lot of you know work that I've been doing in my own personal study about the law and the fulfillment of the law and love and things like that. So do you have any response or thoughts, uh, thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, the New Testament um, comes along, right? And kind of obviously change, <laughs> changes um, some of the, some of the theology, but I would say that um even just going back for a second to the to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew scriptures, um, there is eventually this kind of vision um, in which what develops is this idea that, well, okay, you can try to be a good tree, you can follow the law, you can try to be, a, um, and you can be rooted in God in this way, and then you will be like a tree that's planted by water, and when bad season comes, you won't, bad seasons come, you won't get knocked down, right? You right. won't be like chaff that's just sort yeah. of <laughs> um, disappears right into, into the wind. Um, but there also comes to be this idea of, well, maybe... The, maybe what God is doing is that instead of trying to get us back into the walled garden of Eden, that God is actually tearing down the walls of Eden yeah, and making the whole world Eden. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that, that what's actually happening is that there's a vision of a world in which God's presence goes is able to go everywhere <laughs> and so this kind of ties um a little bit um to 
what happens um, in, in the Hebrew scriptures when we think about um, the temple. Um, so in Hebrew literature, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as you, as you mentioned this earlier in the podcast, it diminishes um, in importance. We do see there's an, in, there's an interest later in intertestamental literature. So intertestamental literature just means what it sounds like, right? It's just a silly academic way of saying the literature that happens between what we now, what we now call the end of, um, you know, the, the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, which is, yeah. you know, complicated in and of itself. But there, I mean, there is, um, there is some literature, right, that later takes up this idea of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad as being important. But in the Hebrew scriptures itself, um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil diminishes in importance, and the tree of life is elevated. The garden also becomes a metaphor for the temple. So it becomes a metaphor for the place that serves as the dwelling of Hashem or the dwelling of, um, you know, the dwelling of God once the possibility of human habitation in Eden is severed. Hmm. Um, so as the as the cultic center of Israelite religion, right, the temple had limited access, but it was decorated to remind those who entered of that paradise that was lost. Um, to Ronald Hendel, um, he's a, a scholar. He says, this is what he says about the temple. He says, like the Garden of Eden, the temple is a place where humans are in the presence of God and its interior is filled with images of sacred trees and cherubim. Not only are the doors and walls of the temple carved with trees and cherubim, but two massive cherubim cherubim statues guard the Ark of the Covenant in the temple's inner sanctum, corresponding to the cherubim in Eden who guard the way to the tree of life. So there is a sense in which the temple, right, becomes this metaphor in a way um, for the return to Eden. And it is explicitly designed to evoke that idea of, of paradise. So Yahweh's presence or, or God's presence was to be uniquely felt uh, in the temple as a reminder of the unmediated relationship that was once enjoyed between humanity and God. Um, yet, I would say this, um, I say this in my thesis, that paradoxically, scripture also affirms that God exists everywhere as, yeah. <laughs> as permeating presence, right? So you think about, right, when uh, the speech, right, at the dedication of the temple, Solomon dedicates the temple. And Solomon says that God is present in the Holy of Holies. That's um, in First Kings, right? But then a few verses later, also in First Kings, the Deuteronomist makes the king say that all the heavens cannot contain him, right? Um, this is a point, right, that... Um, that Gerhard von Rad notes, right? That there's this paradox um, between God sort of not, you can't contain God, and yet God is in this, this sort of specific, um, specific place. Um, so what I what what happens then is, is that in Ezekiel, especially, there starts to be this vision, or Ezekiel has this vision of this kind of new temple and it is a cosmic temple right because the instructions that he gives it doesn't seem like you know if you if you really tried to build this thing it wouldn't be <laughs> it's not like a like a real structure that you could right. architecturally sort of put together with our understanding of um <laughs> you know building things as they are today um but in in Ezekiel you do have though this sort of incredible um, vision, right? Where it says this man brings Ezekiel back to the entrance of the temple. And it says, I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple. Uh, the water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, the south of the altar. And as the man went eastward with a measuring line in hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and he led me through the water that was ankle deep he measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. Ooh. And then like it goes on, right? Eventually Ezekiel was like waist deep in this, this river. And then finally he says, there's a river that had a water had risen and it was deep enough to swim in a river that no one could cross. And the man who's showing Ezekiel, the vision says to him, son of man, he says, do you see this? 
which is great, right? He's kind of saying, hey, are you like, are you catching this? This is, <laughs> this is wild. And then it says, he led me in Ezekiel back to the bank of the river. And when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. And the man said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah where it enters into the Dead Sea. And when it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. It flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. And then later it says, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, right? So this is that psalmist Proverbs language. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary, from the temple, which remember is, is Eden, right? The water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. So Stephen Cook talks about this. He has a great commentary on Ezekiel. And he says that Ezekiel contains an emphasis on creation themes, the patterns and structures from the genesis of the cosmos. It envisions cosmic archetypal forces of creation coming to life in the end times. The visionary utopianism of Ezekiel presents a microcosm of creation an exemplar of the entirety of the world, a systematically ordered world organized around God's temple. The focus on spatiality and creation order combine as a hierarchical matrix of holiness centered in the temple, and it comes alive to bring God's people and land into an Eden-like relational harmony and balance. Hmm. So in other words, Stephen Cook is saying in his commentary that what's going on is, is that Eden the temple, right? You have the physical temple, Solomon's temple, where God can't be contained, but is somehow contained. It's somehow Eden. Right. But in Ezekiel, he gets this vision that it's it's not, it's like the walls of Eden are coming down and the river that flows from the temple is now going beyond the walls of the temple. It's spreading out to the whole world. And so in a way it is the, it is the re-edening of the cosmos. This vision that Ezekiel has directly gets picked up in later intertestamental literature and in especially in apocalyptic sort of literature. And by the time you get to the time of Jesus, you have this hope, right, for this re-edened world, um, for a new creation and this is what it is. It's a long answer to your question, but this is yes. what it is. Paul <laughs> is picking up on, right? Yeah. When Paul says all creation is groaning, right? What Paul is talking about is this vision, right? Of the re-edening of the whole world where it's not that we have to somehow with our free will intact and our you know, personhood intact, right? Like it's not that somehow like we have to figure out how to get back into Eden. It's that God comes to us. Yeah. That the presence of God comes to fill the whole world. And Paul wants to say, this is not, you know, a Hebrew Bible perspective, but Paul wants to say that this event has been inaugurated in the incarnation and death and resurrection of Jesus. That Yeah, that's, that's just awesome. <laughs> and so I love um, sort of connecting this um, back to what we talked about earlier with the flaming sword and guarding the way to the tree of life. I love when Jesus comes around and he, and that's basically what he says, right? I am the way, um, you know, the cherubim were standing in the way. And now he's saying, I am the way, the truth, as opposed to the lie told by the uh, serpent and the life. And so uh, there Jesus is saying just that I, I am the one who is re-edening the world. I love that. I love that language. And so um, to take it from this, only certain people are allowed in there's walls, there's rules. Uh, you, you know, uh, if you are born into the right family, born into the right tribe, born into the right gender. Okay. Now you can come in to this. No, the, the, the water flows outside of the walls and everything it touches comes to life. What an awesome picture. If I'm lifted up from the earth, I draw all peoples to myself. That's yeah. It gives 
so much hope in that, right? That's that's so much cooler. Yeah, it's, it's exclusive, it's, walled off place, you know. Yeah, no, it totally is. It's a much more inclusive vision. Um, it's 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 almost a universalist. It's close, I would say. And I think, you know, certain people would say that Paul is talking about a universalist vision here um, in which the idea is, is that God's presence is redeeming everything everywhere. Um, And, you know, um, that seems to be very expansive. And it also, I think, is helpful as a kind of I mean, let's talk. Let's talk for a second, maybe about the new the New Testament, right? Obviously, in 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 John, we have Jesus as the divine logos being placed at the beginning of creation in Christian theology and in in John's theology in the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it. So when you say Jesus is the way and the truth and the life in Christian conception, um, Jesus is kind of functioning as the tree of life itself. So you can look at this in one of two ways. And I think the New Testament does that. The New Testament both says, Paul here, with with what you're talking about in, in, in Corinthians or in Galatians, right, this idea of the fruit of the spirit. Paul is is taking from a long line, right, of this idea of being like the good tree that is planted by water. If you are rooted in God, Um, and rooted in Christ, as Paul would say, you will bear the fruits of the spirit, love, patience, kindness. And so when storms come, you will be able to weather them, right? So he's following in that um, long sort of tradition that that Paul has inherited. Um, You know, um, he's he's following in that uh, wisdom tradition of thinking about the tree of life and thinking about fruit um, as a way to talk about the health, the health or unhealth of a person. But there's also a sense in which the New Testament writers want to say that the cross itself is a moment in which the tree of death is transformed into a tree of life through Jesus's death and resurrection. So that what is happening is that the crucifixion as this brutal form of Roman capital punishment is the archetype of a tr- of the tree of death. Hmm. That Jesus is hung on the tree of death and that it looks hopeless on the night of his crucifixion. That when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That it is like Jesus is thrust out of Eden into the wilderness that Jesus as God, that God experiences the absence of God. (laughs) And that God in experiencing the absence of God experiences a kind of banishment from God's own self in the same way that Adam and Eve are sent away from the tree of life. Jesus is now hung on the tree of death and experiences that banishment. But then in the resurrection, and I don't think it's any mistake that Mary Magdalene mistakes Jesus <laughs> for a gardener. Yes, right. <laughs> um, and it's not a mistake, right, that right before Jesus goes to die, he is in a garden. He is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yeah. Um, and in that Garden of Gethsemane, he begins to feel that estrangement, right, from God. So much He's in so much anguish that he's he's crying there's blood right when he's crying um and weeping and crying out to god let this cup pass from me this kind of mental anguish that he is experiencing is in the is in this garden and so gethsemane is kind of um the the antithesis in that moment of eden it is the place where the presence of god is starting to move away and then when he dies he dies on the tree of life which is the opposite i mean dies on the tree of death right? Which is the opposite of the tree of life. Yeah. 
In the resurrection, though, Mary Magdalene mistakes him for a gardener, and there is this sense in which Jesus is now um, the firstborn, as Paul says, of the resurrected. Yeah. Jesus, Paul says, the kingdom of God has come. And so you can envision that as almost like you can think about the cross as like little bits of buds of flowers start to bloom at the base of the cross, right? Paul wants to say, this is that moment when the re-edening of the world begins and time is forever changed. Even our concept, right, of time <laughs> is forever changed. People um, have to start writing AD on their checkbooks and things like that, you know. Right, right, exactly, <laughs> right, exactly, right, exactly. So um, I think that that is where this goes in Christian theology in, in these two, two places. Well, I would actually say there's three, but we can talk about that in a minute. But the first place is the continuation of what it means to be a good tree, which is to follow in, um, which is to follow God's precepts, to be in God, to bear the fruits of the spirit. But it's also this idea of the resurrection transforming uh, the tree of death into a tree of life. And then the third thing is that Jesus himself eventually becomes the tree, that we are engrafted onto the tree. So when Jesus says, um, I am the vine and you are the branches, <laughs> The idea is that we all come to Jesus, the way and the truth and the life, and are engrafted in, in into and moving towards oneness with God, or what we might call theosis. Theosis is a movement towards eternal communion with God, which is what was going on in Eden. It is the return yeah. to communion. But it is communion for everyone and not just for everyone. Paul says the whole creation, which means every spider, every sparrow, it's all of it, right? It's all of it. What what a just a as you mentioned in your notes here to me, what a positive theology, right? Instead of uh, the whole world's going down here. You know, here we go. What's going to happen? One day it's going to end in a big fireball. It's like, no, Jesus started something new. I mean, we're on this awesome trajectory now. This isn't something to be sad about. This is something to celebrate. And it's interesting that when you have a more positive theology like that, you find yourself acting it out in your own life. You know, every time you help someone in need, every time you sp spread that love, every time you share the good news of Jesus with someone, you know, there's... It's like you're it's like you're preaching this news that, hey, there's something new going on, something wonderful. Whereas if you think, well, it's going downhill, 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 it's going to end in a fireball one day. You know, here we go. Uh, then what motivation do you have to participate in the recreation of everything around us? You know, where is that that's motivation? Right. Yeah, that's right. That's so beautifully said, Daniel, because I think what's going on, especially in Paul, is that Paul is saying you, know, you think about Philippians, right, where Paul has talks about the beautiful, what was probably maybe an early hymn or an early creed of some sort, where he says, Jesus, who was in very nature, God did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself. Yeah. And there's this sense in which Paul then says, you go and do likewise, right? That what it means for Paul to be a good tree, to bear the fruits of the spirit, is that you align yourself with Christ, which for Paul means to um, align yourself with a God who is a self-giving God, a God of kenosis, a God who empties yeah. God's self. And so that means that everything that you do in this life, every act of kindness, every time that you sit with someone when they're suffering every time that you fight to make the world a better place or even protest if you have to <laughs> every time that you enact kindness and love um and self-control which you know we don't always like no one likes the self-control part no, but skip that one yeah <laughs> but you know that's in there right that's important it's, too it's any time you enact self-control and kindness and love and patience and those things in the world um, and help others 
with kindness and care for the, the poor and for those who are oppressed and for those who are marginalized, when you do those things, you are participating, Paul says, in the re-edening of the world because you are planting yourself as a good tree in God's Eden. Taking it back to Psalm 1. Yeah. Yeah, I as a good it. tree in God's Eden. Yeah. This this has been such a treat, Summerly, and I hope that this has inspired people to uh, maybe sign up for your class in in uh, January and the 13 week or 11 weeks following that, I think. You know, biblically, you're supposed to meet for 13 or 14 weeks. That is a biblical quarter or semester. Oh, okay. You know, but 11 <laughs> weeks, hey, we'll let it slide because you did such an excellent job. <laughs> but again, thank okay. you so much for sharing with us today. Is there anything else that you wanted to add or throw out there uh, for our listeners? No, I just um, say thank you for letting me, you know, catch up with you and spend this time to yeah. talk about something I've been thinking about for a while. And um yeah, I just, you know, I send you all blessings. I hope I get to see you out in uh, North Carolina for the retreat out there and yeah. um, sending um, warm wishes uh, to you for a beautiful Merry Christmas and and especially oh, to your you. to your congregants because I know it's coming up here fast. Oh, yes. And Merry Christmas to, uh, to you and yours as well at Trinity Church. And just, again, so delighted that you're able to come on. Um, I took some notes here on some of the authors that you mentioned throughout the podcast. And I'll try to put uh, those names down in the description below so that people can kind of go and Google those names and find some of those resources you were talking about. And Summerlee, if you have anything specific that you would like to share with them, like a link or a book or an article or essay, just email that to me and I'll, I'll include it in the show notes as well. But uh, thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for listening week by week uh, here on Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. I hope you'll share this podcast with a friend if it's been a blessing to you. We will see you all in the next episode, and may God bless you in all that you do.